This episode is brought to you by Mountain Sea Media. I spent half my life near the Pacific Ocean and the other half in the mountains of Central Oregon. These places are full of profound stories and experiences that guide my life, even now as a media creator and a beer professional. This is how Mountain Sea Media was born. I realized how impactful stories are to our lives and business. Stories share good experiences and the warmth of friends. They improve business by sharing these experiences and connecting deeply with our customers. If you'd like to connect better with your customers through copywriting and storytelling, contact me at jeremy at mountainseamedia.com. It's your story. I'll help you tell it. Welcome to episode 32 of Good Beer Matters. point I counted and we had 12 members of the United States Senate in our bar. They all had smiles on their faces. They all had a beer. Almost all of them had a beer in their hand of one kind or another. So I think we need a lot more of that in Washington. Every aspect of American life, every occasion in America is a proper time for beer and beer belongs in those occasions. The Pilgrims on the Mayflower may have been the first Americans to create beer policy when their beer supplies, which was their only source of hydration, ran low and forced them to land short of warmer latitudes. During the U.S. Civil War, immigrant and first-generation American brewers demonstrated their patriotism by forming one of the first trade organizations, the U.S. Brewers Association. Since then, beer policy has influenced American culture from world wars, prohibition, a three-tier system, legalization of homebrewing, trade tariffs, and more. In the mid-80s, the U.S. Brewers Association evolved into the Beer Institute and has been advocating for sound policy for the $300 billion industry ever since. Our next guest represents the Beer Institute and has found that if you want to get a politician to reach across the aisle, sometimes you just have to hand them a beer. My name is Jeremy. I'm a certified Cicerone, BJCP judge, IBD certified brewer, and a beer writer. I believe the art, the science, and the culture of beer has more of a profound effect on us than we realize. I believe there's a world of wisdom found in every glass, and I intend to get to the bottom of it. This is Good Beer Matters. These are the stories of us, of great food and the beer that brings it all together. I hope you enjoy episode 32 of Good Beer Matters with President and CEO of the Beer Institute, Jim McGreevy. Um, I really wanted to learn more about uh, politics and policy, and I know you are uh, working on that with the Beer Institute in Washington, D.C., but um, before we really dive into the topic, would you mind introducing yourself and give us a little bit of of your background in the beer world? Sure. Uh, Well, first of all, Jeremy, thank you very much for having me uh, on the podcast. I really appreciate it, and uh, love the opportunity to talk about beer and the politics and policy that affect beer. Um, uh, the Beer Institute is one of the nation's oldest trade associations. We were founded in 1862 as the U.S. Brewers Association, and we were founded uh, at the time of the Civil War when the U.S. government put the first federal excise tax on beer, which was 
uh, put in place, at least in part, to help fund the Civil War. And the brewers of the time, who were mostly first-generation Americans and immigrants, uh, wanted to show their patriotism to the country in a time of war. And um, they created the U.S. Brewers Association to help, as our incorporation documents say, help in the orderly collection of the tax. So not too many industries or businesses uh, want to help the government collect taxes, but uh, in the case of our wonderful beer industry, that's exactly what um, the uh, the brewer uh, ancestors of the past wanted to do to help, uh, help the United States in the time of war. And, and we've been around in one version or another, since 1862, um, the, the first, um, the first uh, dec- few decades, uh, all of our um, documents and uh, minutes and, and uh, all of the official uh, uh, material of the organization was, uh, was done both in English and in German. Mm. Um, and we've been around in, in, uh, 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 as an ongoing trade association ever since. And about 31 or two years ago, the organization changed its name to the Beer Institute back in the 80s when uh, lots of Washington, D.C. trade associations were changing their names and rebranding themselves and becoming institutes. So uh, we've been the Beer Institute for about 32 years, and I've been here five years um, uh, with a background in uh, uh, lobbying uh, at the state level and uh, at the federal level. Um, And we have 11 people on our staff here. We have... uh, lawyers and communications people and uh, health policy experts, um, and uh, we really focus on the federal policy around beer um, and promoting the industry with legislators and staff and uh, people in Washington, D.C. who influence the the policy of beer. So it's been a great run. as I say, I've been here five years and have enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, my family uh, owned a bar when I was uh, a child in um, Belleville, New Jersey, uh, very much a, a, uh, a local tavern that uh, catered to Irish immigrants and their and their children and, and grandchildren. Um, uh, and the bar was opened the year after Prohibition ended. So uh, oh, wow. I have my own personal history in beer. Um, and just very thankful to be part of this wonderful industry. Well, and and just with a little research I did, it looks like uh, you you are a lawyer. Do I have that correct? Yes. And and so yes. and you also uh, don't I'm, hold that against me. No, I no I won't because you work for beer now. So so all is well. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, it, it looked like you uh, spent. Uh, quite a deal of time uh, in a, the beverage industry in some shape or form. Um, and, and I was going to ask you, uh, why why would a lawyer get into the beer biz, um, especially if, if you're not representing a big conglomerate or something like that? Was there something that drew you to the Beer Institute personally? Was that just the, the, child, the bar from your childhood? Well, I mean, um, I've always been around beer, uh, like I said, ever since childhood. I had the opportunity to work uh, both for Coca-Cola as a lawyer uh, when I was a lawyer in Minnesota, and then uh, nearly 10 years at the American Beverage Association uh, as uh, uh, first a state government affairs 
representative lobbyist in the states, and then as the chief lobbyist at the American Beverage Association, which is the chief trade association for the non-alcoholic beverage industry in, in Washington and in the states. Um, so I've um, I've been around uh, liquid and beverages now for quite a while, and this opportunity arose at the Beer Institute to come over and become the CEO and. I really did jump at it both because of my own personal history with beer, my love of beer, um, and then uh, my background in the policy of beverages, both at the state level and at the federal level. And, um, you know, I also sort of thought that, well, gosh, you know, how different can soda and beer really be, um, <laughs> naively? Uh, and uh, I found out uh, real quickly that the beer is very different than soda, both from a uh, you know, perspective of the consumer and from uh, the perspective of policymakers. Um, beer is a regulated industry, right? We operate in the three-tier system in uh, in the states. Uh, um, the, the issues around alcohol are different than the issues around um, non-alcoholic beverages. Um, so the soda industry is not a regulated industry, although I think there are plenty of policymakers that would like to see them become one, but uh, we certainly have this long history of state involvement in our business, and um, that's not going to change, and um, you know, we, we, we know how to navigate through those, um, through those, uh, those waters. Mm. Well, and, and you talked about uh, the, um, the, the background of the Beer Institute, and it goes back to the Civil War, which uh, um, when I learned that, I thought, well, beer hardly seems to be a priority when when we're at war with each other. But uh, but of course, you know, you got to fund the war, and 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 that made sense. And and as a uh, act of patriotic duty, um, but that kind of got me thinking about: um, uh, has beer played a role in other subsequent uh, wars? Um, uh, if not from a uh, uh, necessarily at um, policy standpoint, but just the history of of beer during wartime, and and of course, uh, I've I've heard or read stories about um, about uh, soldiers, you know, uh, sitting around, um, you know, basically taking a, a break to put it uh, simply, um, but but having uh, just cases of beer sent over to them so they can they can bond and decompress and and having and having just a a memory, a flavor memory of that of that beer, just tied to this deeply emotional situation. Um, were there other um, aspects of this uh, policy-wise? I mean, were there other enti- beer entities sending beer over to the troops during wartime? And is, is there a story there? You know, I think um, I think there probably is a story there um, uh, from the Civil War through World War One, World War Two. I think you're right. Um, the uh, a soldier's lot is not an easy one, certainly, and I think uh, beer probably was a happy luxury for for people uh, when they had the opportunity to have one, which may not have been all that may not have been all that often. But I think you know the companies, uh, 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 the the brewers of the time down through the years through all these uh, experiences in American history, uh, I think have been there to aid the government, just like in the. Civil War time when they created the association to help collect the tax. I think we've been there to help fund our government through times of uh, through good through good good times and bad times. And certainly, war is a uh, is an example. Certainly, the, certainly our 
beer brewers' experience with prohibition is another one. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, many brewers uh, moved into the soda business. They moved into the ice business. Uh, one very, still very prominent brewer uh, moved into the ceramics business and created a whole separate business that uh, um, uh, was part of the space exploration in the 1960s and 70s. Um, so we were there both. We are there. Uh, were and are there both for our soldiers um, uh, to be a, uh, a respite from their difficulties, uh, but then also as um, companies and individuals and Americans to uh, help aid our country in other ways. Hmm. Um, and, and that kind of reminds me, too, of one of the reasons why uh, we just decided to end prohibition, uh, by my by my knowledge, is, uh, is um, you know, we, we, this depression was really, really, really tough. We need to put people back to work, and man, I could use a drink, uh, again, to put it overly simply. but um, uh, No, that's right. And, and you know, Jeremy, um, uh, the politics and the policy of beer and beverage alcohol uh, were around back then. I mean, we just celebrated National Beer Day two days ago, mm-hmm. which commemorates uh, this year the 86th anniversary of the passage of the Colin Harrison Act, which put beer in the marketplace a few months before uh, spirits. Um, and I think President Roosevelt and the Congress of the time understood that uh, we're the, you know, really in many ways the beverage of moderation. We're in a we're in uh, containers, um, you know, bottles or cans. Uh, we have a certain ABV that's oftentimes lower than spirits. Um, so they saw the, um, you know, still thinking, even when prohibition was over, of the power of the sort of temperance movement uh, back then. Um, that beer was the sort of moderate choice to start out with for the first few months of, of post-prohibition. Um, and so we were in the marketplace before spirits was, and, and I think that just shows um, the, the the difference between beer and spirits, the difference between beer and wine. Um, you see a growing amount of non-alcoholic beer in the marketplace um, uh, today. I think the you know it's twenty percent of the market in, in uh, large many large European countries. It's going to grow here over the next few years. So, you know, we have a responsibility to the consumer um, uh, to put out great products, but we also have a responsibility to the consumer to uh, sort of educate them on the moderate nature of beer. So um, the Colin Harrison Act of the 1930s is a perfect example of, uh, of a policy that was good for beer. Great. Uh, that, and these are all things that I'm, I'm not aware of. I am... I enjoy history, but uh, getting into the policy and politics, this is my uh, not my strength. So I, that's why that's why I wanted to talk with you today, Jim. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, before before we get too far away, I kind of want to go back to the Beer Institute real quick. Um, you gave us the the inception and history of it, but who is the Beer Institute for? Who does it serve? Uh, we are a national trade association for beer brewers. Um, our four largest members are the four largest uh, beer companies in the United States today, Anheuser-Busch, Miller Coors, Heineken USA, and Constellation uh, brand, uh, Constellation uh, Beer Division. Um, we also uh, have uh, a number of the larger craft brewers in the country and a larger of the smaller craft brewers in the country. 
Uh, and we also have um, uh, many of the suppliers to the industry, so the hops makers and the processors and barley growers and can manufacturers and uh, glass companies that, uh, that make the bottles, all are members of the Beer Institute. Um, and as I say, we focus on federal policy, like the really important Craft Beverage Modernization and Tax Reform Act. We've also been very involved in the aluminum issue, uh, the aluminum tariff issue, over the last 18 months. Um, and then we're also, we also spend a lot of time celebrating beer and promoting beer. We have, like I say, we have 11, an 11-person 11 staff here, uh, just sort of steps away from the Capitol building. Uh, but we also have, as the centerpiece of our office, a bar. Um, and we entertain members of Congress uh, when they come for fundraisers, we uh, we host events for nonprofit groups. Um, uh, we use the bar as a way of telling people who we are as an industry and what's important to us uh, from our uh, political and policy perspective. But we it's also a wonderful opportunity to celebrate beer um, with the people who are sort of who are making the laws in Washington. Mm. And frankly. Um, the 11 people in our office are all very talented um, and passionate about beer, um, so they're very important to the work that we do. Um, but, uh, boy, the bar is also an integral part of our work as advocates for beer. Is it, uh, I is didn't particularly understand that uh, at the beginning, but I, I fully appreciate the importance and power of the bar uh, here at the Beer Institute. Yeah, I was uh, just, sorry for interrupting, but is that effectively your twelfth staff member? Is just the the bar itself? Twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth staff member. Um, uh, I like to say we use the bar like a rented mule. Um, uh, it's a very powerful tool for us as advocates. Well, and and I'm sorry, I have to depart from the, some of the questions that I uh, gathered today because I think this is an important piece, um, and I've I've uh, uh, asked and spoken about this before. But the, the the value of a bar in 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 our society, but even more importantly, uh, traditionally going back historically, has always served as uh, that quote unquote the third place. We have our home, we have our work, and then we have that third place. Um, and uh, and again, by my uh, beer study, it uh, you know the uh, Declaration of Independence was originally discussed in a pub. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, Tolkien talked about uh, literary things uh, with a group of literary writing buddies at a at a pub in Oxford. Um, so the the idea of having this uh, pub as a third place goes back in history and goes back uh, globally. Um, is that effectively how you're using your uh, pub these days? Is just to discuss ideas and hey, by the way, here's a beer and let, now let's let's talk. Oh, certainly. Um, we've we we use the bar as an opportunity for people to understand who we are, not just uh, not just the policymakers, the member of Congress, or the U.S. senator, or the. Uh, official from the administration, but uh, for all people in Washington, D.C. Who, who have some role in policy. They can come here for a few hours uh, uh, in an evening. They can learn about uh, the, the history of beer. They can learn about the present nature of beer. Um, uh, they can talk about the issues. Uh, we, I remember uh, last year we had a, a fundraiser for a, a, a U.S. senator 
uh, who uh, who wanted to use the bar for uh, his annual sort of signature event. Um, and at one point, I counted, and we had 12 members of the United States Senate in our bar, including mm. uh, the leader of the U.S. Senate. And they were they were all just they all had smiles on their faces. They all had a beer. Almost all of them had a beer in their hand of one kind or another, um, and they were enjoying themselves. So. You know, I think Washington could use a lot more uh, time where people aren't arguing on the floor of the U.S. Senate or the floor of the U.S. House um, and spending more time getting to know each other. It's it's kind of a truism, in my view, in politics that um, the more you know about somebody uh, socially, the more you know about their family, the more you know about their where their children are in school and what they're doing, um, the, the easier it is to get around some of these really thorny partisan and political issues. So I think we need a lot more of that in Washington. But I think you're right about this, um, the, the concept of the, of the third place. I certainly saw that as a child um, growing up in McGreevy's Tavern. We, um, we catered to a, um, uh, uh, the, the folks who came into our bar were, you know, Irish immigrants and, and their families. And after church on Sundays, people would come to McGreevy's Tavern for, uh, lunch and fellowship and discussion about their past and their future. So um, that's the great, that's one of the many great things about beer. We really do bring people together. You know, listen, how did President Obama uh, try to uh, navigate that um, pretty um, ugly episode in Boston between the professor, the Harvard professor and the Boston policeman? He, um, he brought them to the White House for a beer summit. <laughs> um, and we've been doing that for hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years. And and I, I love the comment you made earlier. You know, and and I I did not want this podcast to become political. I wanted it to just be policy. Um, but you know, just the one little thing I say is, just however you feel about politics uh, in this day and age, you know, um, I, I've I've made this comment before that if you want politicians to reach across the aisle. Offer them a beer. <laughs> you know, it's it's that simple. Um, just to just to get them to sit down and just have a beer and have a discussion. And and uh, and and I had forgotten about that incident with uh, President Obama, and that that was a perfect uh, example. Yeah, it really is a perfect example. I mean, um, and it, it's it's just the most public of uh, examples of of what um, people can really do when they put their guard down and share something that's um, you know really. Um, as I said earlier, a happy luxury having yeah. a beer. Yeah, um, and and again with the uh, again, I'm going to go back to that beer institute. I looked and, and saw that on the uh, on the board for the beer institute, um, you, you know, you have the usual suspects of Anheuser Busch, Coors Miller, uh, Heineken, Constellation, like you mentioned. But I also saw that um, you have a gentleman from Rogue Brewery uh, out here in Oregon, Brett Joyce. Is there uh, you know that that tells me that there's an equal representation from craft to big, um, or, or not not equal, but there's representation of all of it. Is um, is there a you know like the Senate? Is there equal representation, or is it like Congress where it kind of depends on on the size? You get a couple more votes, or how, how does that work as far as the board? 
Well, the Beer and Sue Voting Board made the decision, I guess, about 12 years ago at this point, that um, uh, craft was growing, small brewers were growing in the country, um, and uh, in order to be a credible organization for beer and for beer brewers, that we needed to um, represent them. So we brought uh, uh, a... Uh, we created the small brewer, we call it the small brewer seat on the voting board. Um, and that person is in the room for the discussions that the uh, the voting board has uh, when they meet uh, once or twice a year. Um, and we think it's been a very powerful um, way of getting the perspective of what is now a, you know, very mature part of the industry and a, and a very public and growing part of the industry. So we're very pleased to have a small brewer representative on our voting board. Uh, we also have a larger, we call full board, that has a number of other craft brewers on it as well. Um, and we need, as an organization, to have the perspective of the largest brewers in the country and the smallest brewers in the country. So um, I think it's a very important tool for us as advocates to hear all of the perspectives of, um, of the different brewers around the country, all of the experiences that they're having in their businesses, um, and that makes us stronger advocates. That makes our organization stronger and more credible um, to folks in beer, um, and I think it's very important. So I'm glad that you called it out. I, I, I think, I think, when we are unified as brewers and with the distributors as well, um, we have the ability to do anything that we need to do in Washington D.C. or in the states when it comes to policy. Um, and I think the the best example of that over many years, is the passage of the Craft Beverage Modernization and Tax Reform Act hmm. um, in December of 2017. Are, are you, you have a sense of, of the background around that, um, that piece of legislation? No, please enlighten me and my listeners. Sure. Well, let's see. Um, I guess going back about 10 years ago, the, um, the small brewers in the United States and, and the larger brewers were uh, uh, fighting one another in Washington, D.C. around the concept of uh, what tax relief could be for brewers, excise tax relief uh, uh, in particular. So, you know, talking about the creation of the excise tax in 1862, um, there have been only three or four reforms to that bill uh, over the course of the 160 plus years it's been in existence, that law, um, that tax. Um, uh, and about 10 years ago or so, um, uh, um, small brewers and large brewers were sort of disputing how, who should get the tax relief and how it should be given out. Um, in 1991, the um, the federal government doubled the excise tax practically overnight. We were included in um, in the, the you might recall the George H. W. Bush "Read My Lips, No New Taxes" uh, speech yes. at the Republican National Convention. About a year later, he did raise taxes, um, and he raised taxes mostly on luxury goods like um, private aviation and the sale of yachts. But he also included a doubling of the federal beer excise tax. So we, were, uh, uh, we don't really think of ourselves so much as a luxury good like a private airplane or a yacht, 
but we were unfortunately included in that tax increase, and it and it really hurt the business. Um, it was, um, uh, I think, you could trace a lot of uh, the closures of a lot of uh, regional brewers uh, to that hefty tax increase in 1991. So um, that was sort of the beginning of the discussion around the modern. Uh, federal beer excise tax, which unfortunately led to a dispute between the big brewers and the small brewers over how to create some relief coming out of that 1991 tax cut. And there were two separate bills um, that the Beer Institute and the Brewers Association had uh, run uh, competing with one another for about uh, seven years. Um, And then uh, we were able to find common ground, which uh, was really important back in 2015 to create the Craft Beverage Modernization and Tax Reform Act. Um, by the time the bill was included in the 2017 tax reform, the bigger tax reform bill, that it was called the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, that President Trump signed into law in December of 2017, we had 54 United States senators who were co-sponsors of the bill and over 300 of the 435 members of the House of Representatives. We had bipartisan, bicameral support from legislators who were the most liberal in the Congress to the most conservative in Congress. So I think that's really an important experience for everyone in beer to understand. When we come together, we have a role to play and a powerful influence in uh, the laws that affect our industry. And that led to $130 million of excise tax relief, um, helped the large brewers, but it uh, significantly helped the small brewers um, in the country. And it's a, it's, a piece of, um, uh, it's a piece of policy work that I'm certainly very proud of, uh, uh, very proud of the Beer Institute's role in, in um, getting to the compromise and then working as advocates to pass the bill along with the Brewers Association and our members. Um, But I I think it's just a great example of how when beer is unified, um, we really are um, a strong uh, group to deal with. And and you make a very good point. Uh, My personal in my personal life, my personal experience has dictated that um, we're far more productive and far more effective when uh, we're in a collaborative environment as opposed to a competitive environment. I've seen that in sports. I've seen that in work. I've seen that in family. Um, uh, but the challenge is, as a culture, we tend to be uh, competitive and driven and um and collaborative uh, is not um, a default maneuver, and it, it really—I think—it really would uh, behoove us as a society to uh, just have a beer, take take a breath, and try and work together and, and figure out how to—I uh, call it the trifecta—how to get that win-win-win situation where everyone gets something out of it. Um, uh, but of course, that's easier said than done. Yeah. So. So the bill was passed in December 2017. The excise tax relief uh, started in January of 2018, and it was a a two-year bill. So we got the tax relief uh, on a temporary basis for two years. The tax relief runs out December 31st of this year, 2019. So so the Brewers Association and the Beer Institute and our members are sort of back at it, uh, trying to get the bill either extended, the relief extended for another two years, or... 
um, you know, really more importantly and hopefully uh, made permanent. Okay. Um, so we reintroduced the bill six weeks ago. We already have uh, 45 or 46 U.S. senators on the bill uh, as co-sponsors. We have, uh, at last, last time I looked, we had 99 House members, uh, so almost to that three-digit number of 100. Um, and our goal is to get as many members of Congress, um, House members and U.S. senators on the bill. Uh, obviously, 60 is a very important number in the U.S. Senate. Uh, we strive to get to 60. Um, but, but our bill is something that people want to support, giving brewers some relief to the excise tax is an important policy in Washington, D.C. now. Um, and that's a, that's a much better place to be, as you're saying, than sort of not uh, having unity with one another. Yeah. And, um, you know, Jim, would you uh, be uh, uh, willing and able to uh, give us just a, a broad uh, overview, uh, a history lesson, if you will, on, on the, the significant uh, American beer uh, policies that we've had um, at least, you know, from the from the inception of the Beer Institute, I, and I think the big things that come to my mind. Um, the, again, this is not my area of expertise by any stretch, but you know, prohibition's obvious. Um, home brewing uh, legalization, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, stuff like stuff like that. Yeah. So I, I mean, I I think uh, we're sort of looking at uh, four or five moments in time. The first, obviously, is the um, creation of the excise tax in 1862. Mm-hmm. Obviously, prohibition is the second um, major uh, policy uh, moment in time, the negative one, obviously. Um, and the third really is the Homebrew Act passage in 1976. In 1976, when President Carter signed uh, the Homebrew Act, there were 50 breweries left in the United States uh, at that time. Um, the Homebrew Act created, you know, legitimized the the growing number of home brewers in the country. And I think you could um, uh, obviously draw a line between the passage of the Homebrew Act and the signing by President Carter and the, and the really the creation of um, uh, uh, craft brewing in the country. Uh, you had the class of 86, uh, the pioneers of brewing, uh, many of whom are members of the Beer Institute still today, um, which has led now to over 6,000 breweries operating in the United States. Um, there's a brewery, more than one, in every congressional district in the country. Um, and it's um, so the, the Homebrew Act cannot be uh, underestimated as an important moment in time. I would also say that the passage of the Craft Beverage Modernization and Tax Reform Act is, uh, you know, going to go down as another important moment in time uh, for brewers and their allies to come together to lower the excise tax, which is uh, what we did, to get. A, uh, 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 an amount of money uh, from the excise tax relief that allows for further growth of the industry through um, improvements in um, improvements in uh, brewery operations, brewery facilities, uh, allowing for greater innovation. I think the Craft Beverage Modernization and Tax Reform Act is is really going to go down as a as a as a seminal moment 
in uh, the history of American beer. Mm. Unfortunately, there's a there's another, um, and we hope that this is sort of a temporary moment in time for beer, but there's a, also another negative one um, that I'd like to point out in the current history of beer, and sure. that's, the, that's the implementation of the steel and aluminum tariffs mm. um, in March of 2018. So brewers in the country received a $130 million tax break in December of 2017, but then also were hit with a nearly $350 million tax increase four months later. So in our in our heavily regulated industry of beer, the government uh, gives with one hand and takes with the other. And we are still feeling the effects of the, certainly right in the middle of feeling the effects of the aluminum tariffs. Um, uh, for those brewers out there that are putting their beer in aluminum cans and aluminum bottles, um, that's the single biggest input uh, cost for beer. Um, and the tariffs have driven up the cost of getting aluminum, uh, driven up the cost of uh, the logistics around having the aluminum delivered to their brewery, um, and um, it's led to uh, lots of difficult choices. Uh, I spoke to a number of brewers who are members and others in the industry who, in December of 2017, knew exactly how much they were going to be getting from the craft beverage tax relief provisions, and many of them knew exactly what they were going to do with that money when they got it in 2018. And then by April of 2018, those same brewers were saying, well, hang on a second, um, I, uh, I got this tax relief, but now i got to figure out how much more my aluminum is going to cost. Now, certainly not every brewer in the country um, is putting their beer in aluminum, um, but plenty of small brewers are. Obviously, the big guys are. And that's increasing. So this has been a difficult uh, a difficult year for us uh, in beer because of the aluminum tariffs. Hmm. Um, you, uh, you, I, I, you know, I don't deal with that uh, part of the uh, purchasing aluminum uh, where I work specifically, but I am aware of that, and I am a, and I'm aware that um, it. it it, we were supposed to see relief, and uh, and we're not seeing that relief that we uh, were expecting. So, um, thank you for uh, kind of pointing out a little more details on that. that um, is is this the aluminum tariff story? Is that just uh, to be determined? Are we just kind of waiting to see how that's going to fall, or is there a culmination coming in the near future? Um, well, I don't I don't know if there's going to be any relief coming in the future. I mean, the best. The best outcome for the steel and aluminum tariffs is for their is for them to be completely repealed. Unfortunately, the president um, uh, who uh, implemented the tariffs believes that they are working. Um, he believes that steel jobs are coming back to the United States. He believes that aluminum jobs are coming back to the United States. We don't see any evidence that aluminum smelting jobs are coming back to this country. In many reasons, in many ways. The aluminum smelting industry has left the United States over the past 50 years because of the high cost of energy. So mm -hmm. energy is not going down, um, even if there are tariffs on foreign competition uh, 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 imported aluminum coming in. Um, so the best outcome for us as end users of aluminum is to see the aluminum tariffs repealed. Um, we do have a bill in Congress called the Apex Act, the Aluminum Pricing Examination Act, which would give certain federal agencies 
some more investigative authority over um, the process uh, of setting aluminum prices. There are two components to the price of aluminum. Um, this may be a little more policy geeky than you want, but um, uh, the 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 two components to the aluminum price are the um, the London Metals Exchange base price, which is set daily on the on the London Metals Exchange, and then the Midwest Premium, which is essentially supposed to be a shipping and handling fee to allow the producer to get the metal from um, his facility to the brewer's facility. Um, and we've seen that uh, Midwest Premium go up 130% in the last year since the tariffs were... Uh, created the 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 U.S. beverage industry and beer and soda has paid 250 million dollars in tariff over the course of the last year, but the federal government has only collected 50 million of that tariff because, unfortunately, the aluminum business is a very opaque marketplace, hmm. and we see aluminum producers charging the tariff price on domestic aluminum. So the aluminum that uh, we all recycle, uh, aluminum is an infinitely recyclable product. The scrap metal and the recycled aluminum um, that goes back into making more beer cans is getting hit with the tariff just as much as any of the aluminum coming in from Canada or Germany or Iceland. So um, we need to see some fundamental reforms in how the aluminum market um, uh, prices its aluminum. Um, and we hope that the Apex Act will, um, we hope it passes, and we're working hard to see it pass, but we also hope the introduction of the bill and the discussion around the bill um, uh, makes people understand that beer brewers are really taking it on the chin when it comes to the aluminum tariffs. Gotcha. Um, in well, there's one other uh, there's one other policy that I have just tremendous confusion about, and and other people I've spoken to have tremendous confusion about. But uh, post prohibition, we set up a three tier system to separate effectively on and off premise retail from um, brewers and and stick the distributor right in the middle. Uh, but there are uh, some places, some states where it's effectively a two tier system where the the brewing entity owns the distributor. And uh, and and that has that has been allowed. Can you uh, explain or uh, kind of talk to uh, anyway the 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 reasons originally behind the three tier system and and how we ended up with a, a partial two tier in some places? Yeah, I think the I, I think the three tier system really comes out of um, uh, like I said earlier this um, this continued. Uh, uh, influence of sort of the temperance movement in the United States. Uh, I, I think their prohibition needed to end, uh, but I think there were still plenty of folks in the United States that uh, thought that alcohol was uh, not something that people should have, and and a system of distribution um, would create some kind of um, uh, uh, safeguard against um, um, uh, the externalities of uh, beverage, uh, alcohol beverage consumption. I, I think that the three-tier system works very well in the United States. So certainly, there are plenty of brewers in this country who um, very much support um, the distributors. The distributors work hand-in-glove with brewers to, to um, market their beers and, and get them on the shelves uh, so that people can sell them. Um, in some states, they're... they're 
the franchise laws are different in, in a lot of states, but I think brewers, um, uh, by and large, far by and large, support the system that's uh, in place now. Um, uh, the, the beer distributors were just here in Washington, D.C. for their annual legislative conference. They had seven, 800 distributors from around the country coming in to talk about um, the work that they do. Um, uh, we spend a lot of time with the National Beer Wholesalers Association staff working on issues. They supported us on the craft beverage bill. They've supported um, our work and worked with us on uh, the aluminum issue and on many other issues. We work together sort of as um, allies uh, talking about the, the benefits of beer and celebrating beer. So in some states, the system is uh, different than in other states, and I'm not really all that uh, um, familiar with some of the ways the states work since I do most of my work in Washington, D.C. Sure. But um, I think, by and large, the uh, three-tier system has worked. The 21st Amendment has worked. Um, and um, I think it's very important for all of us in beer as stakeholders to work together on these policy issues to, um, to get results. But when in those situations where it has effectively um, become a two-tier system, is there a conflict there, or is 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 there is that just a non-issue? You know, I don't really know um, where the conflicts arise. Uh, I, I think oftentimes the the distribute the distributors, whether they're you know in some way attached to the brewer or not, are still sort of working independent of the brewer, and that's the that's certainly the goal of the 21st Amendment. Um, and um, I, I think in practice, you have a three-tier system everywhere, um, whether the, the brewer has some role in a distributor or not. Hmm. Okay. Um, well, and, and kind of before we begin our wind-down process, um, you know, another big question I wanted to make sure I ask is, um, you know, you know, you uh, have really gone into the the policy of beer, and there are definitely those people, uh, and I'd include myself in that too. Um, uh, policy and politics is not uh, doesn't control the majority of my brain uh, when I'm thinking about other things. But why is it important for people like me or other people in the beer business to to be aware of and and understand the the politics of beer, at, at least in a general sense? Gosh, Jeremy, as a as a regulated industry, politics governs uh, the way we get to mark get our beer to market. Um, it governs the way we can uh, brew the beer. It it governs on the the uh, governs the labels and uh, the logistics of uh, of uh, packaging the beer. Um, as a regulated industry, government is involved in every aspect of of um, of the beer business. You can see that every day during the state legislative sessions where um, where issues are being fought out um, oftentimes. Um, but certainly on the federal level, we see it um, quite a bit in terms of tax issues, in terms of um, government regulation. Um, so I think it's very important for everybody in beer to, to understand how the government impacts our industry. Um, and also it's important for everybody in beer to understand that the politics of the day uh, will sort of come and go. The issues change, the players change. Um, but I think when you think about the three trade associations in, in beer, 
the uh, the Beer Institute, the Brewers Association, and the NBWA. These are organizations that also can be harnessed to celebrate beer. So back uh, in the 1940s and 50s, after World War II, the U.S. Brewers Association, our, our predecessor organization, ran a national ad campaign in magazines at the time, uh, Saturday Evening Post, Life magazine, called Beer Belongs. And that was a way, uh, that was a sort of, I think probably at the time, a very sophisticated way of, of um, positioning beer in everyday American life. They, they, were, they were paintings that were created by um, a handful of artists that were then put into magazines. And um, the, the themes of, of the advertising was America's beverage of moderation. Beer belongs in a party that you're having with your friends at your house. It belongs at Thanksgiving dinner. It belongs um, at the wedding or out on the beach when you're having uh, fun with your friends. Every aspect of American life, every occasion in America is a proper time for beer, and beer belongs in those occasions. And that ad campaign went on for about 10 or 12 years, so it was very popular at the time. Um, and we actually have some of those paintings that led to, that were the, the start of the ad campaign hanging in our office. So I think it's important for us as trade associations to both advocate for, advocate for beer in the policy space, but then also be forums for celebrating beer. I mean, I think that's very important now in a time where beer is losing to spirits and wine in the marketplace. We've seen uh, spirits taking a market share for the last 25 years from beer. Um, we all need to work together to find a way to switch that story. Um, and we think one of the ways to do it is to celebrate beer. So back to the bar at the Beer Institute, back mm -hmm. to um, the events that we do on Capitol Hill that don't have anything to do with policy, but have more to do with celebrating beer. Um, uh, we do a number of sort of signature events in D.C. that do that, as, do, as does the Brewers Association and as does the MBWA. So I think the, 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 the discussion around the policy and politics of beer both are from sort of the defensive angle, but then also from the offensive uh, angle. What are we doing to celebrate beer and to tell policymakers in the state capitals and in Washington, D.C., why we matter. Excellent. Excellent. Um, so, Jim, I'm going to uh, start asking you some questions to kind of begin that wind down. Uh, and it'll be less about policy and just more about um, uh, your, your personal take on things. Um, but uh, the first one is, uh, Jim, if you could be the beer king, uh, I'm sorry, the king of the beer world for a, a day, what would you change? What would I change if I could be king of beer for the day? I think I'd change the, um, the way we approach the issues. Um, I think oftentimes in beer, uh, we're sort of looking at the, um, the way we can be impacted by something. Um, we look at it as a negative. I think we need to look at 
the opportunities that we have in beer to work together as trade associations, as stakeholders in beer. I think we need to uh, look at opportunities to work with our suppliers, uh, the folks that make uh, the the crops that go into the beer, the folks that uh, make the bottles and cans that uh, get the beer to uh, the consumer. Um, I would like to see a... Uh, uh, more of a working together in terms of how we can celebrate beer and how we can um, talk to consumers and to policymakers about the importance of of our product, both as an economic contributor to our country um, and as, uh, as I said earlier with the Beer Belongs campaign, um, the important social and cultural influence we have, have had in our country really since the beginning. And continue to this day. Uh, and and uh, you know, th- that gets me thinking about just the title of my podcast, Good Beer Matters. Uh, there is an uh, implication of the equal and opposite. If good beer matters, then bad beer must not matter is, is kind of a thought I had. But, um, but as a, a beer judge and a, a beer lover, you know, there really is there really is no such thing as bad beer. There's just beer that fits the occasion or doesn't fit the occasion. There's beer that you prefer or you don't prefer. But um, the kind of speaks to is, is um, maybe we need to stop thinking of things as bad or good. But um, uh, you know, I, I again, I, I think of uh, flavor profiles as as tools um, that can be used in different ways. Maybe philosophically or politically, instead of thinking as good or bad, maybe we figure out how to um, uh, apply them in different ways or consider different perspectives. I, I think that's what I heard you just kind of uh, uh, speak to. Oh, I think that's very true. Uh, what you said is very true. I, I mean, I would like to um, uh, never hear the term fizzy yellow water again. Um, I think there are plenty of people in this country who um, uh, enjoy light beer. There are plenty of people in this country who enjoy IPAs. There, you said it. Um, there's a beer for every occasion, and I think we spend too much time in beer, sort of fighting about what's good and what's bad. It would be better for all of us to sort of celebrate the fact that there is a beer for every occasion. Um, that we provide um, uh, the opportunity for over 2 million Americans to have a livelihood because the beer industry exists, um, uh, that there are there is a brewery in every district in the United States, in every congressional district, in every state, in every state legislative district, um, that, that these um, breweries, whether they're the largest brewery in the country or the smallest brewery in the country, are providing jobs. They're providing a place for people to come and have a good time. Uh, they're providing an um, opportunity for people to connect with one another in, in a different way than maybe they do in the rest of their their day. Um, we got to celebrate beer more than I think we do. And maybe a new tagline ought to be, don't hate, celebrate. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah um, but I think that's a good one. Um, uh, yeah, uh, you uh, trademark of that, and then we'll move on. Um, <laughs> uh, if you had the opportunity to choose your very last meal and your very last beer before you depart this earth, what would they be? Uh, well, um, as the as the head of a trade association that has numerous members, I'm not going to sort of point out what beer it would be. I guess my final meal. Gosh, can, I don't you, know you what can, it would you be. You could choose a style a of beer. Uh, 
you know, I couldn't even sort of say what kind of style of beer. I, I just think, uh, again, that sort of pinpoints um, something over something else. So um, I would like my last meal to be uh, a very nice one with a lovely beer. Okay, that was that was very very uh, diplomatic uh, <laughs> and political. It was wonderful. Um, well, then uh, then I'll see if I can stump you with this one. Uh, given everything we've talked about and everything in the summation of your uh, history with beer, in in your opinion, why does good beer matter? Good beer matters because beer is. Right now, the crown jewel of American manufacturing has been an important part of American culture since colonial times, since uh, since the, the folks first got here to Jamestown in 1609. Um, and beer matters in the United States because we are a great part of American culture. You talked about earlier uh, uh, the the impact that we that having a beer. The, the happy impact that having a beer would would have on a soldier in trying times. Um, uh, there are there are millions and millions of those stories for every American in this country um, having to do with beer, and that's why we matter. That's great. Um, if any listeners wanted to uh, connect with the Beer Institute or learn more about the policies um, and any of the above or more, uh, where could they go to to find out more? They could go to www.beerinstitute.org, um, or they could call our office in Washington, D.C. Um, if any of your listeners are ever in Washington, D.C. and find themselves up on Capitol Hill, um, they can give us a call and they can come over and share a beer with us. We'd love it. Oh, that that sounds fantastic. Um, and then uh, uh, last question, Jim. Um, but before I ask the last question, uh, thank you very much for sharing your insights on this podcast. Um, but uh, do you have any final words of wisdom as we depart? No, I just wanted to thank you, Jeremy, for the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners. Um, I think um, what we talked about earlier uh, related to this podcast, furthering the education of the beer culture, I think is very important. Um, and um, I hope you have a great day and have the opportunity to have a great beer today. Thank you very much for coming on, and uh, and and please uh, thank, uh, extend my gratitude to your entire team for all the work that you're doing. You bet. Thank you, Jeremy. All right. Have a great day. Love it or hate it. Policy and politics affect our daily lives in very complicated, even subtle ways. I recommend that the next time you go to Washington, D.C. and meet with your representative, meet them at a bar and offer them a beer. Join us in the next episode where we review the flavor map we all learned about as kids and discover just how much it has grown up. Good Beer Matters is a show about great beer, great friends, and the experiences we create together but it's also about better appreciation of the beer you enjoy. I believe better education leads to better enjoyment, so if you're a beer and food professional or even a beer enthusiast, then please subscribe to Good Beer Matters and visit me at goodbeermatters.net. After that, grab a beer, hang out with friends, and let the world open up. Thank you for listening. Cheers. Cheers.